You're listening to the Vulnerability Academy podcast from UK Finance and the Money Advice Trust, exploring essential knowledge and strategic practice. Hello there. Welcome to the Vulnerability Academy podcast from UK Finance and the Money Advice Trust. Today, we're looking at products, processes, journeys, and services. So here's something to mull over first. What do Norwich's road system, UK public toilets, and the Financial Conduct Authority all have in common? Well, one answer is universal design. Increasingly dropped into conversations about vulnerability, universal design is the development of buildings, products, services, or processes that are accessible to all people, regardless of age, disability, or other factors. And curiously enough, that makes Norwich a key pilgrimage site for the universal design movement, with this East Anglian city providing the world of the first ever drop curbs in the late 1960s, giving a quality of access to wheelchair users and pushchairs alike. But it gets stranger than this. The inventor of the drop curb, the disabled architect Selwyn Goldsmith, then went on to revolutionise public toilet design. Until his 1980s work, public buildings designed in far more opportunities for men to access the toilet than women, even when urinals were taken into account. But there's another twist. The new Financial Conduct Authority HQ is in Queen Elizabeth Park in Stratford, East London, a world-leading public space when it comes to accessibility and inclusion. And brace yourself, the Queen Elizabeth Park Authority have routinely sponsored a prize for accessibility design called, you've guessed it, the Selwyn Goldsmith Award for Universal Design. So, currently reeling from that introduction and probably wondering what the hell they've just got themselves involved in, I'm joined in our exploration of the meaning, mystery, and hopefully delights of universal, inclusive, and accessible design by three design evangelists. We've got Mary Harmon, who's lead product designer at Tully. That's a new product offering ongoing support to customers in financial difficulties to build and stick to affordable budgets. Hello, Mary. Hello. We've got Bailey Kersar, who's founder of Toucan, a money management app designed to help people overcome anxiety about their finances. Hi, Bailey. Hi. And we've got Lucy Malenchuk, who's Senior Policy Manager for Consumer and Community at Age UK. Hi, Lucy. Hello. Okay, let, let's start by getting our panel just to explain a little about themselves and their work and how it relates to vulnerability. So kind of Mary, so in a nutshell, just tell us a bit about your current role and the projects that have involved design. My role at Tully is um, lead product designer, which means I'm involved with um, innovation, which means research to understand our customers better and facilitating creative sessions with the team. Um, my focus is also on digital interaction, very much so. So that's user journeys, um, wireframes and visuals, and um, prototyping and usability testing and working with our development team. Blimey. Sounds like a mix and we will kind of explore and unpack some of that in, in, in a moment. Um, Bailey, um, tell us about what you're doing and kind of your, you've described yourself as off air as a, a semi-designer. Somebody's learning the dark arts of design. So tell us about what you're doing at the moment, how it relates to design. Yeah, definitely. So I'm the founder of a new money management app called Toucan. Really what I want to do is design a money management app for people to overcome anxiety around their, their finances. And this has come from experience working in fintech across lots of different products and services in product and design roles for the last seven years. So I've been surrounded by great designers I've worked mainly in more of a marketing and product way, but it's very much um, understanding what the priorities are from the customer perspective. So that's what I, I'm trying to bring to Toucan at the moment. Um, when it comes to vulnerability, I'm really looking at um, how can people who perhaps don't have the same mental um, capacity to look at their financial services um, products how can they be given the same access as the rest of um, society? And Toucan is, is trying to overcome some of those barriers. So we've got Tully on one hand looking um, quite broadly. So a product that works for a whole spectrum of people. Yeah. And we've got on the other hand Toucan, which is taking maybe kind of a, a sharper angle onto this looking at a, a specific kind of a group or segmentation in the market. Is that a fair comment? Well, there's... And from my perspective, overlap in that there is different types of vulnerability and there are people who, for whatever reason, personal um, or otherwise, don't have the capacity to make um, well-informed decisions around their finances. And those who are indebted, who are the people that Tully is, is helping, 
Um, those are definitely, from my perspective, part of uh, that group. So for me, there is a lot of overlap. But Mary, what do you think? Absolutely. I think um, so we found that half of the UK are stressed about their debts. So that is a wide portion of people. But we're specifically looking at um, people who are in who are financially stretched. Uh, so, yes, that often includes a lot of people who are in vulnerable situations. Um, and we're looking for ways to make being in debt less stressful and more flexible. So designers at the heart of both of these kind of operations. So Lucy, you occupy an, an interesting position in this debate. Um, I'm not using the word, the, the voice of reason, but kind of um, tell us about the perspective you're coming at from this, uh, from Age UK. So, as you said, I work for Age UK and our public policy team. So in contrast um, to, to the other people on the podcast, I don't actually help anyone uh, but I'm trying to help you to help to help other people so um, so we do research and we try to understand older people and help other people understand how to do that too uh, so I was really surprised though when when I looked at the question how does how does my role involve design because I'm not at all a designer originally trained as a financial services regulatory lawyer so really not a designer uh, to find that my immediate answer to the question what do I do that involves design was really everything because I think we're about trying to make utilities, financial services work for the people who need to use them. So not a designer, but massively interested in design now. So informing the design process with that, that insight from lived experience, however we kind of define or unpack that. And the same, I guess, from the, the, uh, the mental health side as well and with the research that maybe you've been doing with different groups. So kind of regular listeners to our, our, our podcast will know that conversations about vulnerability can become quite complex. No one's broken down in tears yet during the podcast series, but we, we're always pushing things. Um, design's no different. So if it's okay, let's start with some fundamentals just so we've really grasped everything. So I'll, I'll come to kind of Bailey first on this one. So some people have concerns about universal or inclusive design, um, a common one being how it can be possible to design products or journeys that meet the needs of disabled people, older customers, vulnerable consumers, and the masses. So Bailey, what does universal design mean to you? And what do you say in response to concerns or worries about the process? Well, the first thing to say is that I'm not a world leading expert in this area. But from my perspective, universal design is really about trying to design products that are usable by the vast majority of, of people um, to the greater extent that the product designer can can control. Um, and that will only really be applicable in a certain number of scenarios. So I'll give you how I think about kind of banking in, in general and, and what I'm doing at Tukin. So a bank account is a, is a product. And somewhere to put your money and somewhere that you can then make payments from is the the actual product that will enable people to live their lives in the way that they want to. But the way that we access access that product um, differs from, from customer to customer. And the way that I access my bank via a mobile app or um, using payments with uh, uh, my Apple Pay or contactless card will be very different to a person in uh, another area of the country who might be in an older demographic who is much more comfortable using cash and going into branch to speak to a human being. So the way that I think about this is that it's a bit of a false debate to say there's one way of thinking, which is let's try and design products to be accessible for everyone um, versus let's think about designing products that are, can be um, a, a much more niche and, and targeted at different groups. Really, the end goal of whatever product you're designing should be at the forefront of your mind. And if that goal as a bank, for example, is to deliver current accounts to as many people as possible, you need to think about all the different ways that that product um, can be accessed. Um, so, if that gives you a bit of an insight into how I think about universal design, um, I think that's where I'm coming from um, in terms of starting my journey with um, building a money management app for people who experience anxiety around finances. So Mary, you were, you were nodding uh, while Bailey was talking there. So what, what's your take on 
universal design? Is it something we're getting too hung up on in this buzzword? I mean, it's increasingly used in circles that we're taking a universal design approach with our products. The large kind of high street banks, as, as Bailey's mentioning, are thinking about how to make them as accessible as possible to as many people. Um, but, you know, Bailey is also saying they have that clarity of objective from the outset. You know, what, what's your take on it? Um, well, I'd come at this from a very sort of digital perspective, if that's okay. Um, and I think there's been research to show that if you build a more accessible website or app, then you are making it more usable. So back in the 19, uh, sorry, in 2008, uh, Jakob Nielsen found that um, a usability reassessment or redesign of a, of a website um, will improve on KPIs as well, so things like conversion rates, things like load times for your website. So by increasing the accessibility, by increasing the usability, you're actually making it better for everyone. So for me, that that's how inclusive design works. It's easy to assume that that somehow excludes the masses, but I, I really don't believe it does. I believe it makes it better for everyone. If you look at things like how screen readers work, for example, they will jump down a website to headers, um, to links, um, to bold text. And if you watch how people skim read, they're looking for those things too. So setting up your website to work for screen readers also helps everybody, not just people who are using screen readers. And things like autocomplete were introduced by Google for people with disabilities, and now we all use it all the time. Um, and also, I think digital products provide plenty of flexibility. So as, as Bailey was saying, you can you don't have to be restricted to the same set of content for everybody. So if you don't need accessibility features, you probably won't even be aware that they're there. Uh, so I don't think it interrupts anyone else's experience. Um, and then I think I'd also challenge the idea that the masses and people with vulnerability needs being all that distinct. So we shouldn't underestimate the size of the minority that we're talking about in this case. So UK government estimates that there are 6 million people with disabilities um, and one in four people in the UK will experience a mental health problem each year, according to MIND. So we need to be a little bit careful, I think, about making the distinction too um, narrow. It makes it sound like then um, universal design is a, is, is a no-brainer. I mean, Lucy, you, well, do you see good work taking place around universal design with older people in mind? Maybe you can just say a bit more about kind of how that works for kind of um, the groups and the people that you work with. So when we think about some of the groups of older people we might be most concerned about, they might not identify with any particular disability. So they might, if asked, um, they may tell you that it's a little bit harder to see or a bit harder to hear um, than it used to be. Uh, they may also find it harder to get out to the bank. So they're looking probably at, at falling into multiple vulnerability buckets if we were to take a tick list approach, which we'd really rather not, not do. Um, but then they'd be hitting a lot, of, a lot of markers. And so some of this universal design approach just allows us, instead of designing always, you know, have I fixed it for someone with, universe, with, um, with mental health? Have I fixed it for someone who has a mobility impairment? Have I fixed it for someone with sight loss? You know, rather than having separate solutions for all of these different groups, can can real human beings who often fit, fall into multiple buckets? I think most of us probably do. Um, you know, can it work for those people? And I, I would really encourage us to be really positive about universal design. And I think it's an incredibly exciting time now, as we know much more about behavioural economics, how we behave and and interact with all kinds of products and services. And there has been lots of good work in the accessibility uh, movement that we can can use. Also, the way we think about things, so the disability, different disability rights models that exist, can help inform how we how we tackle these challenges. I think we have the potential to do loads of things really well. On the other hand, that can sometimes I think put too much pressure on people. So we're saying, you know, are we asking for every product to be workable for every single person in the country? That's probably not going to be. Possible. So my take on inclusive design is, as we say, we're, we're asking the question for our product, who needs to use this product? And then we're trying to make the product accessible for the broadest number of those people. But we need to be really honest, and this is perhaps a pitfall of universal design, that we won't hit everybody. So then what am I going to do for the people who are left over? I've done my best. I've spoken to people. I've, I've learned about my market. What am I going to do for the people whose needs I haven't been able to meet? 
so I think about chip and signature. We moved over to chip and pin. We had a uh, we had a workaround for people who didn't want to use chip and pin for whatever reason, chip and signature. Great, fantastic niche solution, but it's a niche solution. And consequently, loads of time and effort went into working out how to communicate that to people, getting it to people who needed it. So the solution was there. It probably wasn't really reaching people. So the, the broader we can make our design, the less we need a niche solution, probably does make the design process more difficult up front, but hopefully saves everyone time later on. So it's about having um, an open mind to the, uh, the range of possibilities of consumer experience. So when people are using a product, it's being open to kind of actually designing this, bearing in mind we're all experiencing different ways, but we want to try and group together. Maybe, maybe it's a cognitive, maybe it's physical, maybe it's um, a hearing or a sight impairment. Bailey, you want to come in on that? Yeah, so I 100% agree with um, what's been said, especially around the fact that there are a lot of things from a digital design perspective that make a lot of sense in terms of accessibility and inclusion. That you know, content design is a great example of how those who, um, like myself included, want to skim read an article or find the most um, useful information very quickly, actually designing content for me also helps someone who um, might not have the, the same mental capacity or equally um, helps with designing for screen readers, helps for other things. And and universal design or inclusive design from that perspective makes a lot of sense. What I do want to say is that I think it's helpful to think of what universal design isn't and like what the dangers of universe, having this buzzword of universal design are. It, because actually... In financial services, it's so possible for people to who are, have power in order to make decisions to think that they are making the best decisions um, by thinking, okay, we can design products that are used by you know, everyone and by employing people and, and subscribing to this ideal of universal design, that is what we're going to be able to do. And the danger of that is that actually product design is all about priorities any any product that you you think about designing you start with who is my first customer like my one person who i'm designing for who is the 10 who, who are the 10 people who are the 100 people um you it's very difficult even if you try and and um take into account all of these best practices that thankfully you can find online through you know there's lots of best practices now um, through gov government who've, who've done great work around accessibility but actually fundamental parts of a product um, those decisions need to be prioritized according to the first customer or the first 100 or the first 1000 um, and that's something that I'm seeing developing as you know people put more money into the technology in financial services and less money into other services um, so you know, an example is how many bank branches are shutting in, in this country, which is an inevitable part of, of the technological revolution. And often those bank branches just aren't having the footfall that they once did. However, as uh, Lucy was saying, that is actually leaving people who didn't, don't have a, a solution that to go to they don't have technology they don't use the internet they don't necessarily they're not comfortable using telephone banking that's leaving them without the accessibility that they need in order to access this basic fundamental utility which is a bank account um so those are the dangers in my mind of of thinking that just by employing some of these best practices we can have it all and reach the, the majority. Um, and it's something that I see quite a lot in, in fintech because it's um, an, an area where there's a lot of idealists and a lot of optimism. But again, I'll say it again, it comes back to you start any process by prioritizing who it is you're building for. So if you start by building for a person who has who is confident with money or start by building someone uh, building for someone who is indebted you know you're making choices 
in order to cater for that person. And those choices, by their very nature, are going to not cater for others. Two things there, which I think are really important you've, you've touched on. The first one is you may be designing a, a product, be the platform, be uh, digital, whatever it is, um, that's universally um, uh, usable by a range of people. But however, if they can't access it or choose not to access it, uh, access it then it's not universally accessible. So kind of um, if people want to use uh, bank branches rather than download a shiny app and there's no bank branches, well, you can have as good as universal design on the app, but if people are not using it, it's not accessible. And I think the second thing that you, you touched on there is the, the importance of profiles or proformers or notions of customers that you're designing for, which are very firmly up front. And I mean, it'd be interesting kind of um, like Mary and Lucy to get your take on where we turn to for those profiles, the uh, when I think of accessibility and design, um, I think of the um, uh, the guidelines that are available, which are um, well established and tend to be around physical disability. I mean, are there guidelines out there around cognitive impairment for kind of the design of uh, products, services, web web platforms? Where do, and how should we be creating these profiles or proformers, the things that we carry around in our head, uh, without falling into stereotyping? You know, how, how do we go about that? Um, I believe there are increasingly guidelines um, for cognitive uh, issues out there. Um, but I think it probably comes back to, and probably Lucy's found this too, uh, understanding your customers and going out and meeting people. So to overcome those stereotypes, I think seeing people trying to use your product is so eye-opening. Um, and yes, really helps to break down some of those um some of the blinkered views that people can can have when they assume how a person is going to be and um, it's easy to to assume that vulnerable people are going to struggle or that they want to just get through it quickly or they're not going to ask questions but what we've seen time and time again is that people know when they're vulnerable and so they are very critical and very questioning of any service that you, you that you are offering and um, so we've had to readdress <laughs> and it's only by talking to those people and seeing them use what you put in front of them um, that you get a, get a real picture of, of what they need and what they need is some answers. Lucy? In terms of, of, sort of design guidelines for, for older people other than the physical accessibility requirements, I mean, there are some BSI standards that, that do exist that might be useful, but I'm not aware of any perfect solution that I can email people when they ask me how to, to do it. What we do have, though, really is an, is an increasing understanding of how, for example, if you talk about cognitive aging, of how the brain changes. There's some incredibly exciting research uh, that that's coming out. And I think this is also a very important point. Our understanding is not finished in these areas. So obviously designers are having to design for something now so, so they can't somehow absorb future knowledge. But we do need to be able to review and improve. So I'm sure, you know, we know a lot now and one great source is the Staying Sharp website, uh, which is part of the AGK website, which is starting to translate some of that research for the layperson. So not so much for a designer, but I think actually quite helpful for everybody and perhaps dispelling a few myths and making us more comfortable thinking about that part of the aging process, hopefully as well. So we, we can understand the research behind it. We can also remain open-minded. So just because you know, we learned about it last year doesn't mean we should stop checking about what, what might be available this year because some of these areas are quite fast moving and hopefully will develop into some guidelines to make it easier for people, but we're just not there, not there yet. And I would say, I think talking to people is incredibly important, but as anyone who's done any qualitative research knows, there are some pitfalls there too. I mean, so this question that we've all talked about, you know, who are you designing for is is really the, the key, I think. Who are you designing for? And then how well do I understand the lives of, of those people? Not just their personal characteristics, but really the lives of those people. And I know this makes it sound incredibly difficult, but I don't think it is as difficult as, as we make out. So again, for older people, there's a, there's a very simple fact sheet on the AGK website, and that would be a great place to, to start. Um, just gives you some really basic facts and then some more detailed facts if if that's what you need. So you have an idea about some of the issues that might be applying to your group and then think about who you need to talk to 
you know, who you need to look at face to face or who you need to watch designing using your product. Because if you don't ask the right people, then uh, or a, or a wide enough variety of people, then it's easy just to get someone to confirm what you already think, especially if you're always asking the same people. I'm sure that's something everyone's experienced, but so easy to forget. So just before we move on to talk a bit more about the process of design and how we go about uh, overcoming some of the um, challenges that you pose to us, um, there's a term that fits in alongside universal design and accessibility, and that's usability. It just seems like people keep inventing new words to confuse me. It's kind of so uh, Mary or Bailey or Lucy. I mean, where does usability sit alongside accessibility? What's what's the difference between the two? I think accessibility is is quite sort of well defined. Like you say, there's the W3C out there who will set up sort of AAA standards and and AA standards for for digital products. And um, whereas for me, usability is about do I understand this interface and can I successfully achieve my goals by using it, if that's not too jargony? Um, so yes, there are various elements of the user interface which people struggle to use and they, they can be quite commonplace. So things like drop downs, you actually find people struggle to know whether they've actually submitted the information, whether they've actually chosen an option or not. So for me, usability is about that real nitty gritty um, detail of can I function using this okay fantastic so let's let's talk a bit let's dig a bit deeper into the uh the nuts and bolts of the design process because i think we've we, we're on the surface and then we're going to delve a little bit deeper so i'm going to ask you um starting with with our two designers um about how you actually plan and run a design process to ensure some of these biases or assumptions or kind of um, only having kind of one kind of pro forma in our head of who our customer is are kind of overcome um, so, Mary or Bailey, who wants to walk us through the design journey that they've been going down? So, at a high level, when I'm thinking about designing a product, first off, you define what the problem is that you want to solve by designing this product. And then you go out and we find all the research as much as possible that um, exists in order to help inform your understanding of the problem. Um, that could be from all kinds of different bodies, AGK and Money Advice Trust included. Um, I use a lot of work from the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute, for instance. Secondly, I then write all the assumptions about what a product that could help solve that problem might look like um, down. And a typical list of assumptions range from about 10 assumptions to about 25 and they are very factual statements. I assume that if I build this, then this will happen. The next stage is then thinking about how I'm going to um, start getting my target customer, my target user involved in the process. So once I have an assumption on who that person is, which is part of my assumptions, I will then go out and try and find as quickly as possible um, a small group around five to 10 uh, people just to have a very high level conversation about this problem. Um, typically at that point, I don't even ask them um, about, oh, would this help solve that problem? I'm really just listening to them. Then I go into what um, is in the tech industry, often now called a design sprint, where you take all of that initial learning and you put that into um, a new set of uh, assumptions, very specifically about, okay, I'm now going to think about building a website or an app or a, um, or a service of some kind. And I'm going to try and test that as quickly as I possibly can using a selection of the people that I've already spoken to. And typically that's using a paper prototyping um, system. And a paper prototype is a very simple, um, I can draw one for you now and it, it would have a website on it or an app um, but I could equally probably spend half a day making it look vaguely like a real app and then use a tool like uh, Marvel or Envision um, in order to actually make it so that someone can use it. By the end of that process so the design sprint ends and I have hopefully gone been able to go back to my original list of assumptions and gone great 
I now know that this one is completely wrong. <laughs> this one is completely wrong, but there's something to this one and I should maybe go back and start the process again and, and rejig. Um, so from a very high level, that's how I think about starting with a product design. Um, yeah. So what sparked the, the original idea for the product itself? Because that's the chain of events that follows from saying, right, I'm going to do this particular work around the financial, uh, financial anxiety. Mm. But what was that kind of um, trigger point to think, ah, financial anxiety? And yeah, interesting. So I was working um, at Monzo a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago now, when I met um, Polly McKenzie, who was just um, starting the Money Mental Health Policy Institute. And um, she came in, she spoke to us. Um, I've been following their work uh, very closely for the last few years. Um, I myself have had mental health issues and, and it's something that's very close to my heart. So um, last year when I was actively looking at products that I could be involved in, um, that was part of my thinking. And to be honest, it, the, the product that I'm now building started with a hackathon win, uh, another fun tech term for all of the podcast listeners. Um, and it kind of snowballed from there. So um, that's the story behind Toucan. But more broadly, this process that I describe can be used in any large organization to solve all number of different problems. And it could be from the complete start of a product process all the way to actually we, we have a product already and we know um, that there's a problem with this one specific demographic. Um, but I'd be really interested to hear from Mary about, yeah, what a kind of much more um, design-focused version of that looks like. Um, yeah, so we've used design sprints at Tully as well and find them really useful. Um, so, yes, you want a piece of work that's been done before a design sprint, which has done some of the sort of outlying research and has some information to give you about the kind of people that you're designing your product for. That's really important. Um, but what we would do in a design sprint is bring in people who have done that research and can share the information that they've discovered and people from the business and to understand the business concerns and, and what they're after. And then there might be some element that we've already picked up on that we want to understand a bit more about. So you might have an expert come in and talk to you about building trust, for example, and, and kind of what that involves. And um, and during that process, you sort of identify a lot of problems. Um, and what we try to do in Design Sprint is redefine those as opportunities. So we use this thing called how might we's. And I actually use this to answer one of your tricky questions later on. <laughs> no spoilers. Um, but what that allows you to do is then see where the opportunities are. And in Design Sprints, you talk a lot about uh, these diamonds, which are um, divergent and convergent thinking. So. Divergent, we go out and we explore wide ideas and come up with lots of ideas and we don't put barriers um, in front of them. We don't question them too much during the divergent phase. And then at conversion, we do question them. We say, okay, will this idea work? How many people think it will work? We do like voting <laughs> on which ideas we want to take forward. Um, and then again, with the, the next sort of Diamond is about going out and, and testing the ideas that you've taken forward, um, just as Bailey was talking about. So the divergence there is in all the information you get back from your users. So once you put your prototype in front of them, what do you discover? And then your convergent is thinking, okay, we can fix that, we can fix that, or we need to go back to a drawing board um, and start again. So that, that, that's interesting, because if we think about um, products um, which are not um, only digital, but kind of might involve voice or face-to-face. -face. There's the um, the user uh, or the customer. There's also the staff as well, because they're part of that design process. I don't know if that applies to the, the process you're talking about there, Mary, staff involvement in terms of their insights, because often that voice is lower in some discussions around design, I think, within financial services compared to the consumer voice. Right. Um, yes, I think that can be the case. And with some of the work that we're doing, um, we are working with creditors and, and some charities in terms of, um, well, their advisors who are giving debt advice, what do they need? And without getting too technical, there's kind of the standard financial statement, which sets out a budget and budget categories. Um, and what we tend to find is that for the consumer, those categories 
don't always make sense or they can be a little bit problematic. Um, but because the creditor expects to see this budget in this layout, um, the advisor needs to be able to map whatever um, categories the customer is using onto that financial statement. So, yeah, I think, and especially when we've gone out and talked to the staff in the call centres, their calls have gone from... Uh, the longest being 40 minutes to 40 minutes being the shortest call um, because that space is becoming so much more complex. Um, we're seeing a lot more priority debts, which have much more serious consequences for people, including bailiff action, court action. Um, uh, and we're seeing more of those debts than um, the unsecured debts, the loans, the credit cards causing people problems. And because the priority debts are so much more complex to deal with, that's why we're seeing this increased burden on people in those call centers. So, so these descriptions you, you've given us while our, our kind of listeners are at their place of work, um, this is all going on in, in, in the background. So how can, um, how can staff, organizations like Age UK, other kind of bodies prepare in the best possible way to make, get the very best out of the design process? What would, from a kind of designer's perspective or from Lucy, your involvement in some of this before, you know, how can we get the most out of this? Because sometimes you can turn up to these things and they're over, they're sprints. You know, you can't sit there and ponder and reflect. You know, you have to come in prepared with your spikes. What's, what's the best way for non-designers to get the most out of these? Uh, well, I'm definitely a non-designer. So I would just say, don't be afraid. You know, it's, a, it's the first thing, you know, listening to these processes and the convergent and the divergent and and the hackathons and things, it can sound, uh, can sound incredibly technical, but I think, they're also, it's just incredible common sense, the process really, isn't it? It's, are, am I asking the right question? Are my assumptions correct? We probably all use this in our jobs in, in different areas. And we're also asking, you know, do I really know what I think I know? That's something that lawyers can definitely relate to, you know, always checking. I think I know this. Do I really know this? Um, so for non-designers, don't, don't be afraid. Um, I think really engaging and not holding back in some of these processes is vital because otherwise you'll have a room full of design experts who are inputting into the design and not users or or staff who who may be thinking oh this is either too obvious or it's too stupid or this process is so unreal world that i don't want to engage with it because it just sounds ridiculous um, and and there have probably been times in my career when I have thought that, and I've I've thought, you know, really, I can't remember what some of the some of the words that have been used. I remember when I was younger, uh, thinking, just it's a bit like going to um, a kind of wellness day or a kind of you know like some kind of organisational values day. You know, you sort of think not not really going to engage with so i think non-designers en engage and bring bring what you have it's the biggest thing which i spent a long time telling you yeah <laughs> <laughs> i've spent a couple of years uh, working as a contractor um and the places that i've contracted at have been great but you know as a community of contractors i think um one of the dangers of doing this type of work and being seen as the like innovator in a big organization um is that you get hired to come in and kind of do this process on the side somewhere um which makes the people in management feel like they're ticking the box and that they can go and onto a stage and say that they're doing all of this cool stuff but actually really getting the change to the customer's hands um and actually having a cultural change so that the people who work there feel more empowered um, to to know about what's available, not just from a tech point of view, but simple things like content design, um, service design, all of these new disciplines that are coming out. Um, I think that is a much harder problem than a lot of big corporates are, are really getting their heads around. Mm -hmm. um, but the ones who do manage to do it, I think will will be able to to really dominate because it's a, almost like a secret superpower that startups are, are, are leading the way on, but um, often in big, big corporates, they don't. Have good, I mean, a good example of um, perhaps uh, not taking into account a range of factors, contextual ones that comes to mind. I won't mention the name of the organization. Uh, they designed a, uh, a welcome app. Um, so when you entered a building, uh, a branch, you could press the button on your app to immediately signal you were there 
and that you might have a, a kind of a disability as opposed to having to queue up, go to the counter, your next door neighbor hear this and kind of all have to repeat it a thousand times. Unfortunately, although the, um, they took a universal design approach to the app, they forgot to think about the thickness of the walls in branches, which meant that people were going into their branches, pressing the button on the app and the signal wasn't reaching the kind of the front desk. So hence huge um, uh, launch, um, but very kind of a low kind of maybe impact in some places. But Lucy, you wanted to come. I think, I think they're both such vital points. You know, I think we could say universal design is either a superpower or a tool or sort of both. It's, it's, a, it's a thing. It's not the be and end all of anything. So we use universal design in order to be able to meet the needs of people who need to use products better. So the outcome is that people who need to use a service can use it well and so it's it's one part of that and uh, and another part of sort of non-designers speaking up i think is to make sure that when it hits you know when it hits the front desk and the thick walls it's going to get through but also even thinking uh, thinking be before that so how am i going to often these things require change from the customer perspective so i need universal design of the product but also i need to think about how am i going to get my consumer from what they know now understand now and feel comfortable with now to use this product which i now believe in because i really believe i've designed it in such a way that it will meet these needs that's you've got to bring your horse to the water <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so let, let's move into, this is a new feature in the podcast. So you, you, you are the guinea pigs, but uh, let's see if we can all uh, converge or diverge on, on this one. So we'll, we'll give you a challenge. Um, so just, I'd like you to kind of explain how might you use your design knowledge or expertise to tackle kind of a, a thorny problem within financial services today. So research tells us uh, that the majority of people in vulnerable situations do not disclose their situation to a creditor. Um, this may be due to a lack of trust in creditors generally or concern on the consumer's part about a disclosure resulting in credit or other products being denied to them or just the belief that it won't make any difference at all. So as, as people in the know, um, how would you go about designing a creditor environment that overcame these barriers to disclosure? It can span digital, face-to-face, -face, social media, but it's got to lead to measurable increases in disclosure rates of vulnerability. And would it matter kind of what part of the organization you did it for? Could you take a universal approach or would you have to do something different, maybe in a, a sales environment? You've got three hours of your time. <laughs> Sadly, you're not. You've got, you've got three minutes. You know, your time starts now. Um, can I be controversial and just mm. ask why? Why? That's, is that a good, is this part of the design because process? Is it, is, yeah. I, think, I think, okay, yeah, that would be where I would start with this problem because it sounds like a problem that is more on the bank or the financial provider uh, side than on the user side. If the user is not um, comfortable disclosing and has reasons not to want to disclose, um, there are definitely things there that they might not have knowledge around in that they can access uh, services better if they do disclose. But why would be my first question. It's, um, I'll back that on to Mary then. You're, you're running this session, Mary. It's kind of, um, how would you unpack this why element to get us going? I think it, I think it's a really helpful question and it's sort of, I, I circled around to it in a slightly different way. So I took the kind of, how might we approach? Um, and one of the how might we's I came up with was, um, how might we increase the belief that disclosing vulnerability is a benefit to the customer? Um, which then sort of led me to the idea of, well, maybe it's it's not about disclosure, but it's about the benefits that disclosing gets you. <laughs> so why not, instead of asking up front this question of what's what's your vulnerability? <laughs> Hopefully no one's asking it that way. <laughs> um, you know, maybe when you're presented with uh, the products for you to choose from, um, you can choose sort of bolt-on support packages. Now, I don't believe these should cost any more, but what they do is allow you to um, choose the support that you want from the creditor rather than telling them sort of what your problem is, if that makes sense. So it's a slightly different way of coming at it. Okay, so it's about the, so the disclosure can unlock some benefits of um, extra support, extra time, flexibility, um, perhaps being able to set reminders for yourself, um, access to a single point of contact. Um, so giving out those signals to consumers, creating kind of a, what we might call a disclosure environment could be a helpful thing because if the help's there, it's a bit like what was being talked about earlier, 
but um, consumers are not aware of that help or they're reluctant to engage with it. Um, does nobody any, any good whatsoever. And those barriers that you, that you kind of touched on, it's kind of like, well, do I really want um, the bank down the high street to know about my entire kind of medical history? Do they need to know about my Veruca that I had in 1978? You know, what's the relevant information that I trust to give to them? So this is their kind of notion of designing of kind of benefits. There were three um, elements. If, if I try and unpack it really quickly, there's trust. So apparently only 40% of the UK population has trust in the financial services industry. That's why is it? <laughs> so, or oh, has confidence, sorry, in the financial services industry, according to the FCA. So... You know, if that's if that's true, then the majority have no trust of their financial services provider. And so one big element there is if I don't trust my bank, then why would I disclose? Second thing is a lack of knowledge about any upside, because um, as someone who has probably fallen into, into a vulnerable category myself, I, I didn't know that there was any upside to disclosing at that time. And the third category is the ease, the convenience of disclosing, because if the only time that I ever interact with my bank is when I need, when I need to, when I need to go into a branch to put a check in or call them up because there's been a fraud thing, then there's no kind of other opportunity to to engage and have that question asked. Um, so overcoming those three things, that's those are quite big. Um, Big categories. I'm just completely in love with the the fact we asked why first because I think that's really critical. And I would just want to push a bit more on the on the trust. I've sat in a lot of meetings. Uh, a lot of hours of my life have been spent listening to people asking how can we increase trust in the financial services sector or indeed loads of other sectors too, not just this one. And I think the really obvious answer is well earn it you know like give me an actual reason why I should do this and so we can waste an awful lot of time writing great leaflets uh, telling people stuff that isn't really true and and an, an example of this I think is, is powers of attorney actually so we we get really confused about why people won't take out powers of attorney or make plans for third party access on their accounts and and we don't often think, but we don't often actually ask, well, why don't they? You know, we sort of assume it's a comms problem all the time. And our, the survey questions we ask tend to be around how can we convince people to do this? It's really interesting if you if you go back and look at what, again, what problems are we actually trying to solve? We generally trying to solve communications problems. But actually, I think it might be easier to have that conversation if we really knew why people weren't taking out powers of attorney. So maybe the actual product doesn't work. And, you know, power of attorney, this, this is a products essentially designed in statutes ages ago it's it's not that crazy to think that we could do something a bit better to to help people and so I think we need to address the the real concerns that people have um, and and that could unlock solutions so asking some difficult questions which we sometimes shy away from because they seem like they're too big for us to address I think actually will make the solutions much easier to to find so it's starting that that stakeholder user consumer engagement from the outset finding out actually whether this is um, a product that anybody even wants. You know, even, even if the problem's been defined by an external source, actually digging a bit deeper into it to work out kind of what aspects of that are relevant to people actually uptaking or using a service. Yeah. Well, yeah, or like very simply, like you can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, right? So it's easy to think of it as what can we do as a bank to make ourselves seem more trustworthy and design leaflets but actually if the person you're talking to from the outset has these um, preconceived notions of their bank there's no point trying to do all of that and sometimes those notions might be right so with power of attorney we might say to people oh well if you take out a power of attorney you're not giving away control until you lose mental capacity well actually you probably are really potentially because of the way it operates at the moment so if you want to register your power with the bank then the bank will unless you put a restriction in need to listen to your attorney so it is possible that that person could go in and make a decision on on your behalf and you could sort of unwind it but practically speaking that would be pretty difficult so you know, there, the person needs to be, I mean, 
they should be very trusting of the person they're making an attorney anyway. But that that conversation needs to be different. Instead of saying to people, oh, don't worry, that's not really a problem. When people know it, know it really is, we can say, well, it, if you don't trust this person, it is a problem. And no, you shouldn't be making an, an attorney with them if you don't if you don't trust them now. So I think by actually addressing people's real concerns, um, either you know sometimes that might make us actually think, well, could we could we do we need to change this product a little bit? Maybe we don't need to change the product. Maybe we just need to respect our customers a bit more and have a more honest conversation uh, sometimes with them. Okay, so uh, Mary, I'm not sure if that's divergence, convergence, or just revolution. <laughs> um, you know, what, what's your take on this? Yeah, I think there's some really interesting points raised. Um, so to pick up on a couple of them, um, I read recently this article about zero design, which I think is similar to zero accountancy, where the accountant will look at everything and question whether nothing is sacred <laughs> so we can question everything and I think that's similar to what you, you were touching on where can we go back to some of those things that have been so embedded and there for so long and question them and ask the whys and ask those difficult questions. So we're coming to the uh, to the latter part now of, of the podcast so just a, maybe a question each for you and then a, a final one at the very very end so kind of so Bailey um, we're going to hear a bit in a, in a second about you're just going to tell us a little bit more about uh, the product and kind of how it works in practice. Mm -hmm. But knowing what I know about Toucan, I was wondering why aren't the larger organizations following the lead of the fintechs, some of the newer banking entrants to kind of build these features now? I mean, why, why you? Why do you have to do it now? Yeah, so I think with different types of large banking um, institutions, there are different issues, so I can't speak for all of them. I think with a lot of the industry, they're um, sitting on top of decades of history where their incentives have not necessarily been as aligned with the end customer as they should have been. And therefore, in the last 10 to 15 years, where fintechs have started to pop up and take product by product away from a bank and say, we can do that tiny bit better. Um, the banks have slowly been losing that, um, that power, especially when it comes to thinking about um, how they put the customer at the heart of their, their product decisions. And so it's a much bigger question than just a, a simple let's restructure the organization let's bring in more tech people let's start doing design sprints for me it comes back to what are the core metrics that the entire company is being judged on and for most of these big institutions that is shareholder value and therefore there is unfortunately not necessarily an alignment between how you can build the right products for people on their day-to-day -day life and how the shareholders can maximize value in the in the medium term um i think if if banks the banks that are thinking more long term are able to overcome this but i think fundamentally that's one of the bigger reasons why you're now seeing challenger banks um taking some of these products away and and trying to do them that much better um the industry is changing fundamentally and I think it comes back to what are the what's the core metric that this whole company is founded upon. Um, and I can tell you from working in fintechs that the way that those companies think is very different to how I can tell it, it works in, in a large bank. Um, so, yeah, I could also go into a lot of more practical day-to-day -day cultural things, but actually it's a much bigger um, question, I think. L Lucy, um, what financial services or products, let's kind of name some names if we can. I mean, what, when it comes to financial services or products that are excellent, you know, the Age UK would think this works really well for kind of um, older customers or maybe processes or discussions that are in train about doing this. You're shaking your head. It's kind of a, it's, it's, do we, we've not reached that point of excellence then in terms of design for the older consumer. No, not across the whole of a of a product. So, I mean, we could say that cash is really great and really loved by lots of older consumers. But when we think about the whole journey that a, a consumer experiences obtaining that cash 
might be quite difficult now for lots of people and indeed using it might be. So I think it's a real challenge to say that because if we did, we might pick out a really isolated, what's actually an isolated part of a product or service from the consumer perspective. So yes, those things exist, but we tend not to think, well, how would the consumer find out about them? How would they know what time the mobile branch came because your mobile branch is great and really accessible, but you have to be online to find out where it is. And so it's about how the whole journey fits together for, for a customer from, from our perspective. And I'd just like to throw in a sort of a, an additional challenge thing as I'm taking this big holistic approach, which is that I think we've talked a lot about really targeted products, which are great and definitely have a place. But if we have loads of really targeted products for different characteristics or challenges, then one, I think it can be difficult for people with overlapping challenges. So again, if we look at talking ATMs, which have been absolutely fantastic for giving access, independent access to money for, for some people, but on the other hand, completely useless for, for others who might have uh, a sight impairment, but also a bit of hearing loss, and maybe also just not feel that confident with an ATM. So that kind of holistic approach, hearing what's been said still about needing to think about who your number one consumer is, but always still challenging ourselves for for, for the real people out there using it. And I have really forgotten the other bit that I was going to, to say, oh, well, no, I do. Um, so, and also thinking about not just universal design, but where we need universal service. And I think this is actually a, a really big challenge. There are some products and services and payments, I would say are definitely one of those, where everybody who wants to live independently in the UK needs to be able to access their money, they need to store their money and they need to be able to transmit their money. Everybody needs to do that and they need to know how to do that. And if we create a very complex environment where there are a hundred different ways to do this, you know, a huge menu of choices, um, that in itself creates an accessibility and usability problem. And so that's a step up from universal design. It's not a criticism of universal design at all. It's just another challenge for policymakers and those involved in delivering services which need to be universally available. So, Mary, um, so what are the next steps then, design-wise, for Tully? You're a, a, a new entrant to the market. What, what's what's next in terms of your design process? Uh, so, I think as we move on and, and launch um, fully, uh, I think it, for me it will be a case of working very closely with um, our data science team and our support team as well in terms of learning how people are actually using the product, um, as well as getting people in, customers in to, to meet them face to face and, and do that alongside them. But yes, I think it's about building up that picture um, that we've touched on already, where, you know, you, you, you do your user research at the beginning and that gives you a little piece of the puzzle and then you sort of build up the whole picture as you go along. Uh, so I think that's what I'd be looking to do and looking to improve Tully um, as it grows and develops. Um, we are, have already started working on sort of money coaching um, with um, uh, behavioural psychologists as well in terms of actually trying to change behaviour, which is always a huge challenge, um, but introducing some of those good financial practices. Fantastic. Okay, our last question. So very short response to this. There's a lot of responsibility with this question. Okay, so our listeners now are probably hooked on the notion of design. So they want to know more about designing customer journeys, products or processes. So what kind of one thing would you recommend that they read, listen to, follow on social media, keep an eye on kind of, you know, how do we keep our, our fingers on the pulse of design? How do we educate ourselves, Bailey? Uh, can I give a couple of recommendations? This is a typical Bailey answer. Sorry. There we go. Yes. Yeah, so. so firstly, I would always start with reading something around behavioral science. And the Bible there really is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And then the other book that um, we've mentioned design sprints a bit in this podcast is worth a read is called Sprint. And it's by Jake Knapp. It's um, a book all about how Google uh, came up with this concept of design sprints. Fantastic. Mary. Can I give a couple too? Oh, go on then. <laughs> Um, if you want to get into the real nitty gritty of usability, um, there's a book called Don't Make Me Think by Steve Krug. And again, it's one of those classics. Um, the High Resolution podcast uh, digs into how the big players are using product design and design thinking. And finally, um, Out of the Box 
book. Uh, it's a video on Vimeo and it's a beautiful example of really thoughtful design. Um, it was a phone for elderly people and a way for them to understand how to set up their phone. It's, it's gorgeous. Just watch it. <laughs> Lucy. Because it's all about context and reality, and because this is very exciting right now, and in 10 years' time, we'll know so much more, I would read any history of science, just to make sure we don't get stuck in what's exciting right now and forget that we'll be revolutionized, revolutionized, revolutionized in a very short time. And then because it's all about people, real, real people, I would read uh, anything that Diana Athill has written about her later life or Stet looking back at the whole of her life, partly because that is an absolutely beautiful book uh, and partly because I think it takes us inescapably uh, into the world of real people. Lovely. Thank you. And, and with that, thank you very much to all of you. We've, we've reached the end very sadly. Uh, we started with Drop Curbs. Uh, we covered the gender P gap and the FCA's physical HQ being located on an almost universal design ley line. And we've worked our way through the specific steps of the design process from three very different and very helpful perspectives. However, in listening to the debate, you may have completely disagreed with what we said. Uh, you might have nodded along in complete harmony or started to formulate your own thoughts about revolutionizing uh, universal design and vulnerability. So either way, please don't keep them to yourself. Do let us know what you think, either through the Vulnerability Academy portal or on Twitter, where I am at Chris underscore Fitch. Until then, it only leaves me to thank our guests, Bailey Kursar. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Lucy Malenchuk. Thank you. And Mary Harmon. Thank you. For their time and expertise. And as always, to your good selves for listening. That was a Vulnerability Academy podcast brought to you by UK Finance and the Money Advice Trust. For more information, visit ukfinance.org.uk and moneyadvicetrust.org vulnerability. Produced by The Podcast Company.